for next year, let's focus on our work on making this market more transparent, act with integrity and accountability, but also remember that the work we are doing has meaning and real-world implications to millions of community members in the Global South. The things I'm seeing on the ground on site visits are so wonderful and inspiring, and we cannot forget the stories, the lives changed for better, the clean water provided, and I could go on and on. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities, and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Commodities in Asia on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Svenja Telly, Director of Project Origination and Technology at Base Carbon. We'll be discussing her recent experiences visiting an agroforestry project in India and COP28 in Dubai, and the contributions of local communities, carbon markets, and global policymakers to making meaningful progress towards a more sustainable world. Hello, Svenja. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for joining us today to wrap up our series on commodities in Asia. You're just back from extensive travels in Asia, including India and Dubai. And while I want to talk to you about your experience at COP28, I'd like to start by discussing your recent trip to India. Well, before we get into the discussion, I just wanted to say that it's truly an honor to be back on Smarter Markets and to continue our insightful conversation on carbon and delve a little bit deeper into the latest developments in global climate policy since our last discussion. So in this sense, thank you, Dave, for for extending the invitation once again. And I'm thrilled to share more insights. And let's make this episode right before Christmas another enriching and enjoyable experience for, for everyone tuning in. Well, thank you very much. And let's do that for our audience. As I was saying, you're in India, you're in Uttar Pradesh, visiting an agroforestry project in which Base Carbon has invested. Could you start us off today by telling us about that project? Absolutely. I had the opportunity to, which is an incredible opportunity on behalf of Base Carbon, to return to, to the agroforestry project that you mentioned. It's located in Uttar Pradesh, which is in northeast India. And um, Base Carbon has made a significant investment in the project. All of that was published earlier this year. It was around a tranched investment of $40 million. It's all public. And let me share a little bit, some sort of inspiring details about the impactful initiative with you. To just put the project into context, I'm going to give you a short description. And the project itself, we have a lot of different projects on the nature-based side, right? And people always think about Red Plus projects and reforestation projects. And within reforestation, we have different approaches. One of them is something like a plantation approach, where you really just go in and replant and reforest an entire plantation. But this project is very different. It's an agroforestry project. And the project activities in this specific project, compromise of the planting of native and naturalized trees on degraded rural farmlands and 
those are fertile, but they are very arid. They're in, like in a deserted region. The project entails the planting of around six and a half million trees. And as I said, they are planted on private community lands in Uttar Pradesh. And the, the, the difference here is that the land management within the project is a little bit more complicated because you don't have one large plot. You're working with private lands from communities and smallhold farmers. The project implementation already started in 2022, where around two and a half million trees were planted. And this year, 2023 planting of around four million trees was basically the first expansion. If we think about those things in carbon projects, often projects are seen as just a one-time show. You go do the whole thing. But if you are in large-scale restoration projects, it often makes sense to really have a pilot, demonstrate that it works, work with the communities, establish the infrastructure, and then go into expansion. So this was the first expansion in 2023. And the project partner I, I mentioned, um, I mentioned the project developer last time I was on with you, um, VNV. They are now officially our, our partner in this project. They are the project developers, uh, proponents, and implementing partners of the project. VNV stands for Value Network Ventures Advisory. It's like a, it's a tongue twister. People just know them as VNV in the market. They've been around since 2007 and have really played a leading role in combating climate change. They've been instrumental in devising, developing, and executing community-driven initiatives in Southeast Asia, African regions. Now they're also active in, um, in the Middle East. So really, really cool stuff. And they have had positive impacts on more than 7 million rural households already and have worked on more than 3 million hectares of land for agroforestry and forestry use. And I think we can probably link them um, under the podcast just as a link so people can look for themselves. And as you mentioned, I was just out in the fields. I'm also happy to include some footage and just some, some pictures from the project and You'll see a lot of smiles and flowers and food and us, our the base carbon team, stomping through the fields when I have to say I made a terrible shoe choice. And I definitely didn't read the briefing out here. <laughs> but the, the project, for everyone who's tuning in you know, from the carbon market side or from the, from the buy side, it's an AR project, which is going to be registered under, under the new VERA methodology, expected to be registered in 2024 and expected to deliver around 1.6 million credits over the next 20 years with vintages between 2023 and 2024. Could do the math, right? Yeah. So that's that's the project in a nutshell. That's great. And I, I'm curious you know, about why you decided to visit. Often we hear people talking so much about remote sensing and satellites and technology. What did you learn by visiting the project personally and and getting your boots or your poor shoe choice on the ground? <laughs> Slippers. <laughs> Good question, Dave. It's a question I get a lot. And I'm going to get to the remote sensing part after just talking more about my big picture approach, why I think it's really important to get into projects. I really believe that the significance of experiencing projects on the ground, especially when working in origination and deploying substantial investments, which are often in the tens of millions of dollars, is really, really important. And to uphold their most integrity in the work, my ethos really 
revolves around their understanding that a project cannot truly be comprehended only from a piece of paper or a term sheet. Personal visits are key to connect with the people involved and witnessing the project firsthand and gain insights into the logistics on the ground are are crucial because many of the elements that are critical to the project's success or failure can't be neatly checked in boxes. Even if we would like to believe that because that's the most scalable solutions to carbon markets, but it's about building relationships and building deeper understanding that goes beyond just documentation. And that brings me to your question about digital MRV and GIS sensing. It's all an additional tool to bring more transparency and integrity into these projects. And digital MRV for restoration or for reforestation projects is going to be useful later on, but especially in the beginning of the project stage when the project is still so volatile and the seedlings are very small. I would say it's very difficult to detect what is the seedling and what is actually just natural regeneration from what is grass that just grows back. And going out into the field and looking at, you know, how the planting is happening, what is the mortality rate, just getting a a sense on, on what is happening out there and how the community is engaged in the execution of the project, it makes a difference. Yeah. And when you bring up the community, you know, I was enjoying reading your LinkedIn posts that you were putting out during your trip. And I noticed in one, you emphasize the importance of that engagement with the local community. And in fact, projects are often originated in and often by the local communities. It's not necessarily the third party coming in from the outside. I was wondering, how does that change how you think about how you invest and partner with local communities in these projects? Well, whenever you hear me on any panel or speaking anywhere, I always say community engagement is crucial for project success. And I'm an economist, just like you. I've done a lot of work in um, causalities and correlations. And just from from that perspective, there's a huge, huge, huge correlation between community engagement and project success. So we need to remember that these projects, they are long, right? 20, 20 plus years long. And to make them a success, they can't be designed around a community. They need to be designed by engaging the community and through the community itself. So I think we shouldn't see benefit sharing mechanism, as it's often called, as a desired add-on to a carbon credit that makes it a better carbon credit, but as a way to first, obviously, do the right thing and also to de-risk the project itself. Because communities, they are at the front line of carbon projects. And in a way, they're the stewards of the natural resources that we as facilitators are bringing into the financial markets. While nature-based carbon removal projects are far from commodification as of now, we need to honor that the financial instrument here, which is the carbon credit, reflects a real-world natural asset which is cultivated on private or community lands in the global south. And without the support of the communities in which we originate these projects, I would say that the long-term success of these projects becomes really questionable. Let me give you an example from, from our India project. What is often not discussed is the infrastructure needed in these sort of projects, in these sort of large-scale restoration projects to make them even feasible. And I mentioned earlier that the farmland is on extremely arid land and 
at the bottom, and it's often not talked about of this whole project, is the development of water infrastructure through catchment ponds that have liners, putting solar pumps in place, wells, irrigation systems. You know, India is highly dependent on the monsoon season for farming and ecosystem restoration, but the monsoon patterns, they start to change and alternate because of climate change itself. And having reliable and self-sufficient irrigation infrastructure in place makes the project more resilient to droughts, decreases tree mortality, and increases climate resilience for community through, for example, improving um, food security. And this project specifically, as I mentioned, water infrastructure is really at the bottom of, of being able to execute at scale. And the project includes around 16 different species, which have been selected through an inclusive community-led process. And the, the project ensures that all species are planted are non-invasive and do not cause any negative impacts to the ecology and biodiversity of the project area. And while some of their species, and that's also often a debate in restoration or ARR project, like all has to be native. But if you're an agroforestry project, you really need to make sure that's, that the plants that are not planted for, for any sort of timber or carbon can generate additional income and food, such as fruit trees and nut trees. And the income generating species planted will remain the property of the farm owners forever. And coming back to your question, Dave, the importance of, of community engagement in the project design is that by designing around the needs of local farming communities with a high level of stakeholder engagement, ownership, input and feedback, farmers can choose to either, like it's their choice if they want to plant high density planting or they can elect and continue agricultural practice. On a, on a project parcel through, for example, intercropping and vegetable cropping. So there are many variations here how you can include communities in the design phase to make the project more resilient and successful. And in order to do these sort of projects, you really need a project partner that you can trust in terms of project design. Trust and experience are really important. And I mentioned VNV earlier, and in my last episode, and I can only say once more that I, I really admire their continued focus on projects that are aimed at restoring ownership, dignity, enhancing livelihoods, and building resilience amongst the first responding communities in the Global South. There's so many great points in there. I just want to go back to a couple of them. I really found it insightful, that idea that community engagement isn't a nice-to-have add-on, but it's really central to de-risking the project and making sure that it's going to deliver on what it's promised to deliver. I don't think that's often highlighted enough. And I wanted to ask you, you know, when you brought up the point of the local community is often the stewards of the local environment and the local ecosystem. You know, even I think the last time when we were together at the AIDA conference, you know, I talked to a number of folks working with farmers in the US and Europe. And, you know, a lot of that conversation was the farmers want to treat their land in a more sustainable way. They see it as something they want to pass down through generations. It's not a commodity to them, but they need a little help. They need the finance to help be able to do the right thing in a way. And I'm wondering, is, is that the same in some of these local communities? Do they want to engage in you know these more sustainable methods, but they need the finance to be able to, to afford to do that? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very crucial point in these sort of projects where it's not just about planting trees. In a way, the revenues from carbon credits and the future revenues from carbon credits help build that sustainable infrastructure for, for community resilience and added community benefits. And a lot of that would simply not be possible without carbon credit revenues into these communities. For example, if you want to put a solar pump in place, it's really easy to do if you have the means to do it. But if you don't, you don't. And once you have a solar pump and an irrigation pond ready to go on your property, that changes a life in rural India. It's not just about decreasing tree mortality, it's also about turning a piece of desert into an oasis. And that's really at the bottom of it. You remind me, it's, it's a echo of what we heard with Ken Newcomb talking about some of the projects they work on, that it's really about catalyzing yeah. a sustainable change. And once you kind of get people over that hump, once you have the, the solar pump, once you have the catchment basins, once you have the better irrigation systems, it really transforms lives in a way that's much more sustainable going forward. And you don't need the constant exactly. support necessarily exactly. you know, over decades. Yeah, it's really about building sustainable livelihoods. And I wanted to ask you, as you at Base Carbon are expanding the geography of the projects in which you're investing, your projects in Africa, project in India, project in Vietnam, do you see differences in different parts of the world, Asia versus Africa, for example, or are the commonalities of the projects more what strike you? Well, absolutely. As we venture into different parts of the world, like you said, Asia and Africa, where we are currently active in projects, we do notice distinctions. For instance, the types of projects that seem promising in, in one place might not seem promising in another place. Coming back to the India example, where India is a, it's a country with an extremely high population density and um, no stress on food systems, so agroforestry projects make a lot of sense. If you're restoring ecosystems in the Amazon basin, you might want to go for pure reforestation, leaving the agroforestry part out. So it really depends on the need of the ecosystem itself, and the ecosystem is embedded in a society. So it's an equation with a lot of variables, I would say, to find the right fit. It's not a one fit for all solution. Each project looks different. Every community need is different. Every project types might differ based on where you where you're trying to, to execute and build a project. But I would say and <laughs> I would I would say most people are gonna agree with me that over the last years and we're gonna probably get more to that later. One of the biggest factors is uh, regulatory and political risk, depending on where you want to deploy capital, especially around Article 6. And from an investor perspective, it's a game changer. Because if you're entering a jurisdiction where there's a lot of uncertainty around Article 6 risk and if corresponding adjustments are going to be applicable to your projects or not. It's, it's a really, really big risk that it's just, it was an externality, but now it's really part of the equation that we need to think about with a very high level of uncertainty because there's simply no clarity around it. And 
entering Jewish strictures, it can be a yes or no, having that peace of mind and understanding the nuances of the regions and navigating potential risks become critical factors in, in decision-making processes. So it's, it's really a plea for, for policymakers to work closely together with actors in carbon markets to, to not create another bottleneck for, for private sector capital deployment and jurisdictions where these sort of projects can add a lot of value. Well, that gives us a good segue to start talking a little bit about COP28 and your visit there. You went from India to Dubai for COP28 and a trip that took you from the level of the local community in rural India to the level of international negotiations and policy conversations. What was that transition like and did it give you any thoughts on how those two levels connect or or don't connect? Yeah, I can start with a joke. Um <laughs> If you see pictures of me sitting on panels, I'm probably wearing the same shoes that I wore in the field. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, coming back to, to LinkedIn, I, I wrote a post while I was still in India, and I want to paraphrase it here, that we must strive to understand and collaborate with all stakeholders in carbon markets, you know, ensuring sustainable development for both the environment and society, as we just discussed. And no matter if that's what I wrote, how, how glossy our conferences and panels are, the fact that projects are originated in and often by communities will never change. And I still think that's true. And coming to your question, the transition coming from the field to the conference venue, it can be pretty, pretty rough. And it makes, it makes it sort of seem as if originational works exists in two diff completely different worlds. And maybe this answer is a little bit more philosophical, but we are all humans working in this. And one day you're learning about traditional ways to find water in deserted areas through indigenous knowledge. And then the next day you are talking about the same exact project on a panel under neon light. And I reflect a lot on my work. I've been doing this for 15 years almost. And I think carbon markets and especially origination, you're working in an industry in which Authentic origination requires us to hold to hold the full range of opposites in our minds while we relate to both worlds at the same time. And remembering that and acting from that awareness creates successful projects, in my opinion, because it's about existing in both worlds at once. And I would love to see more initiatives to have community representation on key panels and events, for example, at COP especially during CSR sessions or corporate ESG events where chief sustainability officers are present. And it's about closing the gap between carbon markets and ESG. And in my opinion, it's, it's at the point where we see community participation, but it's often still happening on the fringes of these large climate conferences. And the corporate side and even the finance sector I think it's our responsibility to educate ourselves and close the gap coming back to co-benefits, so-called co-benefits, how well done and well executed carbon projects have the same outcomes and results as ESG-focused strategies from corporates. It's there's a lot, of, it's a Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap, and that's something I really wish would 
enter more the, the global stage when carbon projects are discussed, not just in the context of markets, but also in the context of ESG and sustainable development. Yeah, it'd be nice for the, the people who are most impacted to have a seat at the table. Exactly. Yes. Speaking of you know some of the panels, maybe shifting gears a little bit, I'm curious about what your experience at COP28 was like. You know, what were some of the the conversations that you were engaged in? Some of the panels. What were some of the the important things being discussed? I would say, <laughs> well, first of all, COP28 was it was an interesting COP, right? Geopolitically, historically, what is going on in the world right now? It was a field full of tension, I would say. And the conversations I've been engaged with or around where, you know, around carbon removal technologies, we talked about that in our last podcast, how does the future of, of tech-based carbon removals look like? What is the role going to be of tech-based carbon removal, such as direct air capture, in order to even get close to something like a 1.5 or 2 degree climate target under under IPCC? And I'm going to get a little bit more into that based on where, where COP was held this year and the role that oil and gas played. But the, the role of, of tech-based carbon removals was definitely at the forefront of not just discussions around carbon markets, but also around just climate finance at large, the role that technology development and scaling technology development can play under market-based mechanism and how market-based mechanisms can foster scaling these sort of technologies to a certain point. That I would say is one big bucket of discussions that I was part of. Then um, the digitization infrastructure needed in carbon markets, of course, as always. We've seen some initiatives over the last couple of years around, um, you know, DLT, blockchain, um, and building meta registries for, for carbon markets, such as Climate Action Data Trust. And now we are really entering a new era. And I'm going to get back to that. It's the buzzword of the, of the COP is that's Article 6, because countries will also need national registries in order to tie into Article 6. So that's a whole different story on the on the side of digitizing carbon market infrastructure. And what else? Well, some of the big headlines coming out of COP were including the language of transitioning away from fossil fuels. And I'm coming back now for where the, where the COP was hosted, UAE, Dubai, huge oil exporter. And there was definitely some controversy around it, but we can dive into that if you want to get there. Sure. Like, cause I, I know some of the big headlines coming out from COP28 were the language on transitioning away from fossil fuels to the extent whether that was meaningful or simply language. And, you know, I think there was also headlines about a greater collaboration among carbon offset standard setting organizations. I'm curious when you look at the things that came out of this COP, what was some of the most important progress coming out from your perspective? Well, so I'm, there, there are definitely pros and cons what came out of there. I'm going to talk about both a little bit in the context of the energy transition. And so there is some consensus around that COP28 is acknowledged as a new era in the energy transition. And there are updates on, on the text on energy. And there are some good things and there are some bad things. So starting with the good ones, I would say 
there has been strong language around transitioning away from fossil fuels to achieve net zero by 2050. And that's, that was all over the media. At the same time, there was no commitment to phase out fossil fuels. So that's, that's a big controversy here, right? There's a commitment to transitioning away from it, but no commitment to phase it out. What does it look like? And there, there have been some commitments around tripling um, renewable energies as a key solution. Um, there has been some reinforcement, um, the 1.5 degrees pathway alignment, which was explicitly stated in the energy text that came out of this COP, and on the importance of reducing emissions from especially road transportation, even though aviation was left on the sidelines. We always have next year. And coming back to what I said earlier, that this COP definitely gave an interesting, I would say, twist to carbon capture technologies. While there has always been a lot of, you know, back and forth around what role of can carbon capture, traditional carbon capture and direct air capture play in industrial decarbonization and carbon removal at large. And this COP, I would say, really focused more on the language in the energy text focused more on that it might be an open door for diverting the attention away from the need to cut emissions and really be able to reduce emissions through capturing the carbon from legacy technologies. And there has been a lot of back and forth around the role of like tank-based CDR and post-combustion capture. We've recently seen an acquisition, a large acquisition in the, in the air capture space from carbon engineering was acquired by Occidental Petroleum. So it the, the space gets a little bit blurry and the fact that tech-based carbon removal was the role of them, also not defined under Article 6.4, makes it uh, more complicated. And I, I think it's really important to recall that outside of the context of oil and gas, technology-based carbon removals are needed. To, to stay on the pathway of 1.5 and 2 degrees. There is no way around it. And even if they're applied right now in the oil and gas sector, we have to apply them for, for the pure purpose of removing carbon from the atmosphere. And one, I would say, bittersweet outcome from this COP is that there has been no commitment to end fossil fuel subsidies in its entirety, which is now in the context of where the COP was hosted. I would say, a, sort of a disappointing outcome, although there was a promise made that their record heights of, of, of fossil fuel subsidies was reached in 2023, which is this year. So maybe it only gets better from now on. And another area that I think some people found disappointing is Article 6, which you've brought oh, yeah. up a few times, that people were hoping there would be more progress on making that operational. And I'm curious, as, as a provider of carbon finance, has this COP, including work on Article 6, made progress or not made progress, in your opinion, in the things that matter for increasing the flow of finance to carbon projects like the one you were visiting in India? Yeah, Dave, that's a, that's a sore spot. Well, we've had both good and bad outcomes in, in this context. On the high level, it was very disappointing, but not surprising. The takeaway, the big news is that countries have rejected the latest guidance on operationalizing Article 6.2 and 6.4 of the Paris Agreement. That was 
decided there was there was a glimpse of hope on December 11th after a draft text was released, but then on December 12th, which is the last day of COP, it was um, it was not accepted by by their membership countries. So they're moving forward through the next year. Countries say they will continue piloting cross-border cooperation under Article 6.2 of the Paris Agreement, despite the failure by negotiators to agree on guidance for operationalizing that paragraph and and its companion, which is Article 6.4. So we are sort of left to our own devices again for, for another year. And we see a lot of movement in the market and stakeholders really wanting to be proactive under both 6.2 and 6.4. There have been negotiations and discussions around um, something called a unilateral approach under Article 6.2, where there is a possibility to, to involve the private sector under Article 6.2 and not just 6.4. There are some thought leaders in the market piloting some of these negotiations and, and projects, which I think is very hopeful because as our dear Andrea um, Bonsani, AITA's international policy director said, the delay of the Article 6.4 mechanism is not a victory for environmental integrity. It is a victory for the anti-market agenda. And it's, it's tough words that I second, absolutely. It, it was a disappointment. We really, really hoped for Article 6.4 to, to make more headway. But on the, on the bright side, putting that aside, the high level, high level discussions on the bright side, I really saw a lot of uptake and interest from on the national level, from leaders and, um, environmental protection agencies and the ministries of environment in a number of countries in the global south, realizing the potential of the voluntary carbon market to, to attract private sector finance into, into their jurisdictions. And I've seen some promising initiatives from the global south where those ministries are planning to work more closely with market-based mechanisms and even consider the opportunity of blended finance for scaling projects through expansions, what I mentioned earlier, especially if the pilot phase was successful. On the, on the origination side. So I think there's sort of a gap right now. We, we see there, you know, the Article 6 body doing their thing and we're not going to have any outcome for another year. But then time is urgent. So we see more local and regional approaches, how to kick things off. Sounds like life in the voluntary carbon markets in a way. Yes. <laughs> you need to, need to move forward on your own to make progress. Yeah. And I want to stick with the theme of progress and optimism as we close out because the holidays are approaching. And so it'd be nice to look forward to 2024 and see where we can, you know, realistically make meaningful progress. Obviously, 2023 has been a challenging year in the voluntary carbon markets, lots of hard work being done. When you look forward to 2024, are you hopeful that we'll make meaningful progress in the coming year? Well, it's almost Christmas. <laughs> so I will just make a wish and say yes, please. What what Andrea said, the quote I, I read in the last question, it, it really resonated with me. The the VCM and Article six point four are currently over politicized. And I think next year it's about um let's get back to basics and remember that while Article six negotiations have been going on 
since COP21 for 2,934 days. <laughs> and I failed to agree to even the rules of making the rules for Article 6.4 and not going to change anything for another year. In the meantime, the VCM has delivered more than 1.4 billion tons of verified emission reductions and removals, protected more than 10 million hectares of threatened forests, provided clean, safe cooking to millions of vulnerable households, especially women, transferred billions of dollars from the global north to the global south, and established an end-to-end -end integrity framework backed by consistent approaches to verification from the major crediting bodies, including VERA and Gold Standard and has been strongly endorsed by the UNFCCC, the World Bank, the COP presidency, and financial regulators, and dozens of developing nations. As I just said, that I saw a lot of regional uptake, how to bring private investment into these, into these jurisdictions. And as a, as a closing word, and just really coming out of this COP, a little bit frustrated on, on, the, on the high level policy side, but also trying. My last LinkedIn post was all about hope. Like, if you do this for more than a decade, you need to really keep your hopes high in order to keep going. And for, for next year, let's focus on our work on making this market more transparent, act with integrity and accountability, but also remember that the work we are doing has meaning and real-world implications to millions of community members in the Global South. And I think we need more education, as I mentioned earlier, from both corporate off-takers and investors, the understanding that not every project is the same. The things I'm seeing on the ground on, on site visits are so wonderful and inspiring, and we cannot forget the stories, the lives changed for better, the clean water provided, and I could go on and on. And just because some of the projects that were highlighted by the media earlier this year failed to deliver what they promised, it would be wrong to scrutinize this powerful tool we have to drive sustainable change. And I really don't believe that it's fair to the communities that benefit from these projects. And as a buyer, it's our responsibility to do our homework about the projects we buy from. And in the context of this difficult COP, and this, as I mentioned earlier, a very complex year, it's essential to remind the negotiators and leaders what they are negotiating about. And as a larger community working in, in climate change and in sustainable development, it's about lives and the future of our planet. It's, it's about reminding people to care about people they will never meet. And that is, that is at the bottom of the work we are doing. And I said on one panel at COP that working in carbon markets, we need to be less reactive and more responsive. We need to ground ourselves in the work we are doing and be really convinced by what, by what we are doing, because as a player and a stakeholder in the market, you should be doing the right thing. And that is the message and the hope that I have for, for the next year, where I hope carbon markets are going to be a little bit stronger again. And that has to happen through educating corporates. That has to happen through work that's led by integrity and by reframing carbon projects away from something that is simply a carbon credit 
to something that has meaningful impact on lives in the global south. And just to repeat what you said, we need to remember to care about people we will never meet. Couldn't be a better message for this time of year. Yes. Thanks so much for being with us, Svenja. Hope you enjoy the holiday and look forward to seeing you in the new year. Thank you, Dave. It's it's always a pleasure to be here and happy holidays and a happy new year to, to the team and to everyone listening to the podcast. Thanks again to Svenja Telly, Director of Project Origination and Technology at Base Carbon. We hope you enjoyed the episode. This concludes our series on commodities in Asia. We'll be back next week with our holiday special. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, ABAX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.